Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Some of you, I think, are probably still partying from Richard and Susan's wedding. It was a wonderful time. I think I learned more about K-pop than I did before. So uh, that was a lot of fun, and we wanted to certainly pray for God's continued blessing upon their, their life together as husband and wife. There are uh, some things we want to pay attention to as we go to uh, a prayer before the message this morning, and that is uh, two things, uh, both dealing with the fact that uh, death is a constant reality that we all uh, encounter and must face at one time or another. And so many of you know, uh, who have been blessed uh, by the ministry of Tim Keller, you know that Tim has, uh, has died and has gone into the presence of Christ, so we want to pray for uh, the Keller family, uh, and then closer to home in our own uh, church family here, Pastor John's um, aunt Cindy uh, died last night. That is his mother's sister. So we would like to pray for uh, the family and for God's comfort as well. So please join me in prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you that there is in this life hope for life beyond this life. We rejoice with Richard and Susan, and we pray, Lord God, that you would continue to bless them in their life together as husband and wife, as they begin this journey together of, of discovering your, uh, your will for them, the, the, the joys and, and the, uh, the struggles that come through learning how to live with another person and to live with one another. It, it is an exciting time, Lord God, to see how you mold and shape us through the covenant of marriage. We pray, Father, for uh, the Keller family, and we ask that your spirit would uh, comfort them in uh, their time of grief. And then closer to home, Father, we pray for Pastor John and his family, particularly his, his mother, as it is her sister who has died. We ask for your comfort, for the spirit, O oh Lord God, to uphold them during this time, that there would be the hope of the gospel shared, that there would be a turning uh, to Christ for not only the comfort but also the assurance of the resurrection and to eternal life. We pray, Lord God, that you would grant to Pastor John wisdom as he uh, counsels and consoles his mother and extended family, and that you would comfort him as well. Father, we turn our attention to your word in which you encourage us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, in which you encourage us to be sober and to be watchful with regard to the schemes of the devil. Father, the power to resist knowing that it comes from your Holy Spirit and also with the hope and the assurance that in due time, in your time, if not in this life, certainly, Lord God, in the life to come, you will indeed confirm, strengthen, restore, and establish all those who have put their faith in Christ because it is to you that full dominion, authority, and sovereignty are are in your hands. And so we ask for the blessing of your spirit now upon the hearing and the preaching of your word, for we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember at the end of uh, last week's message, um, and if you weren't here, you'll be reminded uh, of that, I, I compared uh, not only going through a book of the Bible, but the Christian life in general as being on a long car ride. And it's always that last hour of a long car ride that tests our patience, our endurance, and even our, our as you will, our character. Which reminded me uh, that on the, and I'll give you a bit of like American life here, on the night of February 22nd, 2003, a blizzard raged through northern 
Northwestern Ontario, south, Southern Michigan, and Southwestern Ontario. How do I know this? I drove through that blizzard. My family and I, at the time, were living in Ridgetown, Ontario, and we had driven down to Bowling Green, Ohio, to visit uh, some uh, people from the church, at which I would soon be uh, called to pastor, and we were looking for houses in Bowling Green on that day. And we stayed well into the afternoon, about five o'clock, the first snow flurries began to fall. And that we were visiting, having a really wonderful time uh, at the home of our, uh, my soon-to-be best friend, Bruce Edwards, there. And uh, around six o'clock, we noticed that the snow had accumulated to about six inches. And we had a decision to make, whether we would stay in Bowling Green or whether we would make the drive back to Ridgetown. And uh, two things compelled me to make the drive back to Ridgetown. One, the next day was Sunday, so I still had to preach. Uh, and then secondly, I really wanted to get home and sleep in my own bed. Well, we got into the car, uh, and uh, by now the, the snow was over six inches deep. Um, in good weather, the drive from Bowling Green to Ridgetown should take about two and a half hours. That night, the drive lasted six hours. The snow had fallen so heavily that it obliterated all the lane markings on the I-75 going north, and it had fallen so heavily that the snow plows couldn't keep up with it. It was, as soon as they would drive by, the snow would accumulate. And there were no lanes. Everybody was making up their own lane as we were driving north. And when I could, I would get behind a semi. Uh, everybody was driving, thankfully, uh, in a very sane manner. No one drove above 30 miles an hour, not even the truckers, not even folks that had four-wheel drive vehicles. It was a long, long, arduous drive home. Uh, and, but with God's blessing, we finally got there. And we arrived safely. And we're, Great relief you pull into your driveway after that long a drive. I think about that time, and I think about what I said at the end of last week's message. I think that sometimes when you are following Jesus, it is like following or driving in a blizzard. We know that there's a destination at the end of this ride. We know that we're somehow going to get there, but in the midst of it, it's hard to see the road in front of you. There are so many challenges. There are things obscuring your vision. There are other distractions that are around you as well on this drive. And like the way that Peter was distracted when he saw the wind while he was walking on the water to Jesus, the circumstances that we're in and the distractions that are around us can cause us to take our eyes off Christ. They can cause us even to panic. They can cause us to forget what it means to trust him and it can cause us even to forget how to practice what he has taught us to do. And so when that happens, as we read Peter's letter, speaking from his own experience of one who has sunk in the waters of despair, who has denied Christ and been restored, Peter wants us to remember two things. That the first is that God uses fiery trials, trials of various kinds, to confirm and to strengthen our faith. And then secondly, as we learned last week in the first half of chapter 5, that whatever happens, keep practicing what Jesus preaches. That whatever happens, continue entrusting your life to God by continuing to do good. That whatever happens, fix your eyes on Jesus and do what needs to be done today. Don't worry about tomorrow, just worry about the road in front of you at that moment. So whatever happens... In keeping with his earlier commands, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, and above all, keep 
loving one another. Whatever happens, he says, keep practicing what Jesus preaches. So we saw that in last week's message in the first half of chapter 5, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is under their care. He admonishes and tells the younger members of the church to hump, to uh, submit to the elders' authority. And then he tells everyone else to be humble and to uh, take an attitude of humility toward one another. And in this week's message, as he rounds out his list of instructions, he turns his attention to the entire congregation, elders and younger members included, and he now tells them to cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you, to be on guard against the devil and his schemes, and then ultimately to trust God to keep his promise to reward those who keep following Jesus and doing what he says. So just breaking down the text in that way, but we must cast our anxieties on God, says Peter, because he cares for us. So you look at verses 6 and 7 again, just to hear them once more. And, and, and by the way, this is why I had us read or hear Zephaniah. I, I'm just wondering how many of us know not only where Zeph Zephaniah is, but have actually read it. I encourage you to read it. It's a wonderfully encouraging book, particularly the, the chapter that we, we read together. Because it ties in with this idea of God vindicating those who trust in him. But we cast our anxieties on God, says Peter, because he cares for us. Humble yourselves, he says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, at the proper time here may mean in this life, or it may mean, most likely means at the end of time when we stand before Christ and receive a reward. It's at that point, having humbled ourselves, trusting in him, not retaliating when we are reviled, that God now exalts and vindicates his own. But until then, there is this need to humble ourselves by casting our anxieties upon him. Years ago, when uh, I was interviewing at uh, the Congregational Church in North Dakota, the church flew our entire family. We just had two kids at the time. They flew our family from Boston out to Bismarck, North Dakota, and then from Bismarck, a long drive out to Beulah. Well, as you might imagine, there aren't many direct flights from Boston, Massachusetts to Bismarck, North Dakota. You have to lay over in Minneapolis and make a connecting flight. Now, I can't prove this, but I, I just have this suspicion that the architect who designed the Minneapolis airport designed it purposely so that the arrival gate for flights from Boston was clear on the other side of the air terminal from connecting flights to Bismarck. Now, those of you who have traveled with children on an airplane, you know when you have four suitcases, two car seats, a diaper bag, it's not easy to get across miles of a terminal. Now, they had carts, they even had those sky caps, you know, the guys that go around carrying your luggage. But yours truly was too proud and too cheap to pay the guy the three or four dollars a bag it would cost me to have him carry our luggage. I wish I had, because it would have saved me a lot of effort. It would have saved me a lot of energy. And we would have, we made the flight, but we would have been less tired, we would have been less anxious, we would have been less grouchy. 
I didn't have to carry my own luggage. But the thing is, we like to carry our own luggage, don't we? And I'm not talking about the luggage that you carry on an airplane flight or that you load into your car when you go on a vacation. I'm talking about the baggage that we carry in our heart and in our mind and in our soul. So is Peter. Some years ago, a mentor of mine, a preacher, a friend said, Mike, it's been my experience that when I stand to preach in front of my people, seven out of ten of them have a broken heart. Seven out of ten of them are carrying something so heavy they barely got out of bed that morning, let alone get through the church door. Seven out of ten, he said, have sinned so badly and they feel so guilty and so ashamed, they're afraid to tell anyone about it. Because if they do, they are convinced that their friends, their loved ones, will abandon them. It's been my experience that my friend's counsel is true. Because there probably isn't a person in this room this morning who isn't carrying some kind of baggage, some kind of pain, some kind of shame, some kind of guilt. And if you are, whether you're in the kingdom or not, and you're carrying baggage that is too heavy for you, but you insist on carrying it because, after all, it's your burden. And somewhere along the way, someone drilled into your brain that God helps those who help themselves, which is totally heretical and unbiblical, but you do it anyway. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus wants that baggage. He wants your pain. He wants your anger. He wants your despair. He wants your fears. He wants everything that troubles your heart, that weighs upon your mind and pierces your soul. He wants it all. And he's saying to you, I want to carry that baggage. Will you let me? We hesitate to give him our baggage in the same way that Bilbo Baggins hesitated to give Gandalf the ring of power. We hold on to it. It's ours. Why should Jesus have it? It's mine. Belongs to me. It's my precious. And we hold on to it with, with sweaty hands. And yet the longer we carry it, the heavier it gets. And in some cases, if we're not careful, the more embittered our heart becomes and the more darkened our mind and our attitude gets, not only toward God, but toward others. So it's, it's for good reason then that when Jesus was alive and he stands there in Matthew's gospel and he says at the end of Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I remember years ago watching, if you've ever watched the film, The Help, which is about uh, um, a group of black women down south who made their living as maids working for the white ladies in the south that took place in the 60s. And at the end of that film, Viola Davis, who plays one of the maids, 
is accused of stealing silverware, which she did not do. And the woman who is accusing her has been a nemesis of hers throughout the film. Incredibly mean, incredibly rude. And at the end of that, as, she's, as Viola Davis is trying to defend herself with tears in her eyes, and the woman's name who is accusing her is Hilly. And Viola Davis looks at her and says, aren't you tired, Miss Hilly? Aren't you just tired of all the hate? Aren't you just tired of all this? And Jesus looks at us and says the same thing. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of carrying these things? Why do you insist upon holding on to things that are, are mine to carry for you? And we resist. We keep him at arm's length. I'll carry it, Lord. This is too heavy for you. It's my burden. And Jesus Jesus looks at us with a, with a, with a glance and he says, are, are you kidding me? I carried a cross up a hill after being tortured all night. And I was laid on that cross. And there were nails driven into my hands and my feet and a crown of thorns driven into my scalp. I was pierced by a spear. I died. I was buried and placed in a tomb, out of which, by the way, if you haven't noticed, I rose again. And I rose again to carry the very anxieties, the very burdens, the very anger, the very despair, the very shame that you refuse to give me. I can't handle it. Are you kidding me? It matters to me, says Jesus. It matters to me about you. That you realize that I love you. Now stop being so proud. And give me all your anxieties. All your anxieties. Don't be like the seed that is cast on the third soil in the parable of the sower. Remember that seed? There's the first seed that's sown on soil, that's on rocky soil. The, the birds of the air come and pluck it away. The second one is sown on, on rocky ground. It, it springs up, but it has no root, and it withers. But the third ground is sown among thorns. It begins to grow, but then what happens? Jesus says, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in, and they choke the word, making it unfruitful. Don't be like that, says Jesus. The various trials that you go through, the anxieties that you feel, they are all designed to lead you to me. If you're a sinner, and we all are, run to Jesus because he saves. If you're a sinner and we all are, run to the church because that's family. That's where we tell each other the things that are burdening our heart so that we can pray for one another, so that we can uphold one another, so we can encourage one another. And if you're a sinner and you've been saved and you've been part of the family, then go tell the world about a Savior who is willing and able to take on those burdens and those anxieties, who has died for our sin. And if you're a sinner who's been saved and is part of the family and has been a witness to the things that Jesus has done, keep following him. Keep practicing what Jesus preaches. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Do you wonder why it's hard to sleep? Do you wonder why your soul is dark? Do you wonder why your mind is heavy? Do you wonder why your feet plod and the word of God is cold 
It might be because you have not humbled yourself and what you're feeling is the mighty hand of God not to crush you, but to put you onto your knees and to make you see and to understand, I want those things. I have come to take them from you. Your fear, your worry, your anxiety. I could give you a list. I could write volumes about the anxieties, the fears, the regret, the doubts that I wrestle with. I'm old. Not that old, but I'm old. <clears throat> Some of you don't have regrets. You will. Some of you may not wrestle with doubt. You will. Some of you may not wrestle with anxiety. You will. And at that point, when you feel the weight of those things, may the hand of God be weightier still to put you onto your knees and to give those things up. You can't carry them. No one can except Jesus. You cast our anxieties. That's how you humble yourself. There isn't a formula. You humble yourself by casting your anxieties onto him in the same way that the people cast their cloaks onto that donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Right? The burden bearer was on an animal designed to bear burdens. That's why he came. He bears our sin on the cross. He bears all of our burdens. So when we humble ourselves, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of the greatest strength, the greatest faith, the greatest confidence. Because he wants them. That's why he came. God's mighty hand is a, is a hand of salvation. It's a hand of provision and protection. It's a hand of grace and mercy. It's a hand that is large enough to hold the universe. It's small enough to hold our hand when we are afraid of the dark. It's big enough to carry all of our anxieties, yet small enough to touch our hearts with love. Strong enough to defend us when we're in trouble, yet gentle enough to comfort us in our grief. It's a hand that exalts the humble, it strengthens the weak, it cares for the needy, it comforts the afflicted, it even afflicts the comfortable, it guides the lost, it saves sinners. It's a hand that will vindicate the faithful on judgment day, and it's a hand, oh, I pray if you resist this, resist no longer, it is a hand that is ready and eager and willing and powerful enough to bless and to restore and to establish and confirm. God's mighty hand is a hand of blessing. You feel that weight pressing on you? Give up. Say, as a, you know, as a kid, you used to wrestle on the ground, you know, and say, uncle, say, uncle. You know, and you, and you don't want to give up. God's saying, say, say my name. Cry out to me. I've come to take those things. So we cast all our anxieties because God cares for us. We know he cares because his son Jesus came to take those burdens and bear them on the cross. And then, G and then Peter says something curious. He follows up this command to cast all our anxieties on God because he cares for us. He follows up with a command in verses 8 and 9 to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Sober-minded is one of his favorite expressions, having a clear mind, a clear head. 
be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I wonder that when through this, why does he do this? Why does he follow this, this command, this, this glorious thing about God caring for us now as if he sort of changes gears and now be watchful. <laughs> he goes to this very soft tone to this almost this sense of warning. I think it has something to do with the fact that we're prideful. And that's one of the things that the devil uses to pry us away from God. That if the devil can convince us to keep carrying our baggage, to keep bearing those anxieties, and we can do it without God's help, then, then we don't need to rely on Christ. We don't need to rely on the Holy Spirit. If the devil can do that, then he has us exactly where he wants us. One of my other experiences I remember in North Dakota is watching um, one of our old-time uh, uh, retired ranchers took us out to a cattle branding. If you've never been to a cattle branding, it is a unique experience. You see the cowboys, you know, it really was. It was like something out of the Old West. It was about, it was dawn, right? And these, the thundering herd comes, and the cowboys there are whooping and hollering under horses, and the cattle are running. It was just like rawhide of the old TV series. You, never, you don't even know what that is. Anyway, as soon as the, the, the cattle started coming, they began to cut out of the herd all of the calves because they had to be branded, and some had to be castrated. That's what the devil does. He cuts you off from the rest of the herd by making you think it's all up to you, that it all depends upon you. And when he has you alone, defenseless and vulnerable, he has you exactly where he wants you. So you have to resist him, says Peter, by standing firm in the faith. How do you do that? Well, there's a, a Puritan by the name of William Gurnall who wrote a, a three-volume commentary on Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 you got to love the Puritans because only a Puritan can write three volumes on 11 verses. The closest we can come to that is, I think, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote six volumes on Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Anyway, this is what Gurnall writes in his first volume of the Christian in Complete Armor. He says, we must, wa we must watch wisely against the enemy. Pay careful attention where you need to keep the strictest watch. We must watch over the areas in which we are weakest and have often failed. The weakest part of the city needs the strongest guard. Watch carefully what you find to be the weakest. Is your weakness in passion? Watch over it as one that dwells in a thatched house watches over sparks from his chimney. And so also in any other particular as you find yourself weak. Now when you enter into various trials, when they come upon you, Elsewhere, Gurnall says, trials are, are like leaks in a roof. When you go through a trial, it shows you where you are weak and where you need to shore that up. That's essentially what Peter is saying here. Be sober-minded, be watchful, be alert to those areas that need watching. Because your adversary does prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He identifies the devil as our adversary. If you don't believe in an adversary, just give it time. 
The same idea, the same word uh, is also expressed of the word Satan, which essentially means a, an accuser, a slanderer. And that's the way Satan works. He slanders us, he accuses us before God, and he hurls those same accusations against us to separate us from the love of God. He roars like a lion prowling, says Peter. He roars so that we will, he foolishly thinks, sometimes he succeeds, he roars so that we will fear him more than the God under whose mighty hand we are to humble ourselves. And he roars through slander. He roars through those anxieties. He roars through times of persecution. He roars through the pain that we endure in the midst of fiery trials. And he does that all in an attempt to persuade us and to pry us away from God. Now, that seems rather obvious, right? You see a lion roaring, you don't go near it. But Satan is a crafty fellow, so if he cannot intimidate us with roars, he will seduce us with words, which is what he does to Adam and Eve. When you think about it, the chief weapon, the primary weapon in Satan's armory is language, is words. That's why Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly weapons, but it's in the realm of ideas. So, God, so the devil comes along and says, did God really say? Does God really love you? If God really loved you, would, would he send you through this fiery trial? And if you really love God, why are you doubting his love so much? Are you sure that you love him? Are you sure that he loves you? Look at your brother over there. His marriage is good. His kids are all well-behaved. Look at that sister over there. Her career is on the upswing. Why are you going through such hard times? Maybe it's because God loves them more than he loves you. Those kinds of insidious lies that he works. I've heard it said that Satan tells God a thousand lies about us. God believes not a one of them. He tells us, does Satan, one lie about God and we believe him. So be aware, says Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Let us not be unaware, he says, of the devil's schemes. And be aware, too, that the devil doesn't really care about you or me. God invites us to cast all our anxieties on him because he truly does care for us. The, the burden-bearer who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself took our sins to the cross nailing them there so that we no longer have to carry them. Satan tempts, to, tempts us to cast away our hope, to cast away our trust and faith in God. He doesn't care about us. All he cares about is destroying our faith. Where God seeks to comfort us, the devil seeks to devour our heart, our mind, and our soul. He seeks to crush. When God's mighty hand comes upon us, it's to humble us so that we, he may exalt us. When Satan seeks to grasp us, it's to crush us. He roars at us with the same kind, this is a, if you're keeping score at home, this is the second Lord of the Rings reference. He roars at us with the same kind of rabid anger 
that Gollum roared at Bilbo for having stolen, so we thought, the ring of power. The devil cultivates our friendship, says Peter, as part of his plot to betray us. Peter knows of whom he speaks. Because he heard when Jesus said, I ha Have I not chosen twelve of you, yet one of you is a devil? So when the devil seems to put his arm around you, he says, come on, let's talk this over. He's plotting your betrayal. He invites you to feast upon his delicacies, not to feed you, but to fatten you up. Because he means to have you for dessert. He lurks in the shadows. Always, says Peter. So be watchful. Be sober-minded. I, I read a, a bit of an article about uh, the uh, comedian and actor Robin Williams. He, in 2014, he took his own life. Uh, he was only 63 years old. All through his career, Williams struggled uh, with an addiction to cocaine as well as alcohol. In an interview that was given before his death, he explained that his addiction hadn't been caused by anything. It's just there, he says. It waits. It lays in wait for the time when you think, it's fine now. I'm okay. Then the next thing you know, it's not okay. And then you realize, where am I? How did I get to Cleveland? Well, what Williams says about addiction can also be said about sin and the devil. Our enemy is patient. He waits he waits for the time when we think, I got this. It's okay. I'm fine. And then suddenly, it's not fine. And you're in Cleveland. Nothing against Cleveland. It could be North Massapequa. But you wonder, how did I get into this place? How did I get into this mess? How did I get into this place where I never intended to visit? I never intended to see it. I never intended to live here. Peter says the way that you avoid that is to be prepared, is to resist Satan by standing firm in the faith. How do you do that? Well, you do that by remembering God's promises. You go back to what he says in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, that we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, that is unfading, will not spoil, that is secure. You remember that Jesus has said, at the end of Matthew's gospel, I am with you always to the end of the age. You remember that he has given us his Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. You remember that he himself is praying for you in the midst of your trial, as well as the availability and intercession of the Holy Spirit. You remember that you have brothers and sisters that you can tell the truth to. You can lie to pagans. You can lie to non-Christians about how you're doing. Don't lie to a brother or sister in Christ. Tell them. I'm struggling with this. I need help. I need prayer. I need assurance. That's how you stand firm. You don't do it by yourself. It's a, this is a group project that we're on. It's why we're called into the church. 
and then from the church sent out into the world because there are people who don't know Jesus who are carrying baggage that is far too heavy for them to carry and you can introduce them to the burden bearer and you can share with them the good news that there is one who has taken those sins and those burdens how do you know they say well let me tell you and then you begin you can't predict when the enemy will strike, says Peter, but you can prepare. And you can also be aware that whatever suffering, whatever anxieties that we experience are not unique to us. They're shared by anyone and everyone who follows Jesus. And some of us have been through things that are worse than any of us who haven't experienced those things can imagine. So when you realize that you're not alone. One of the, one of the, in an interesting way, one of the comforts, odd as it may seem, one of the comforts about on that long drive back to Ontario was the fact that there were other cars on the road with me. So it's like, I'm not the only one who's crazy. Everyone else is out here, so okay, we're in this together. And we were, it was almost like this fellowship of drivers. We were all maintaining the same speed. We were all in the same little cluster because none of us wanted to be left alone. The same is true with regard to the church. You may be bearing a burden, too ashamed to share, and you'll share it with a brother or sister, and they'll say, you know what? You too? You struggle with that too? Let's pray for one another. Let's go to Jesus and ask him for help. The chief, one of the chief weapons of the enemy is to make you feel that your suffering is unique only to you, that no one else bears this kind of pain or has committed that kind of gross sin. You haven't. Believe me, you haven't. But if you think you do, you will never get on your knees and you'll never confess. You'll never repent. You'll just live with that shame. And Christ will weep alongside you and say, if you would just give me that burden. I will fill you with the peace, the hope, the joy that you long for. Be on guard, says Peter, because your enemy, our enemy, prowls about like a roaring lion. And lastly, trust God to keep his promise to reward those who suffer because of Christ. He says, after you have suffered a little while, emphasis on the little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How do you stand firm in your faith? Remember that God has called you to himself in Christ to receive a glorious inheritance. So the trial that you're going through, the anxieties that you're experiencing, the the doubt, all of that shame, that's all part of how God is calling you out of those things to follow him. Because when all is said and done, he will keep his promise. Years ago, when I was going through a, a hard time, a friend of mine uh, told me something, not so much to comfort me, because there really wasn't much comfort in it, and I told him to his face, but he wanted to give me perspective. He says, you know something, Mike? Nobody gets out of here without singing the blues. And he's right, because when you're in the midst of a trial, it's not all that different than being back in high school and having to learn algebra. 
and unless you're an engineer or someone in the scientific field, you're sitting there and you're thinking, when in my life will I ever have to solve for X? What does this have to do with real life? And then real life happens and suddenly you realize life is all about solving for X. Because you realize learning algebra isn't about learning algebra. It's about learning how to think. And particularly learning how to think logically and rationally and calmly about how to solve a problem. It's about what happens to your brain as it's wired to think in that way. To say, I, I know this, I've been taught this, I can, I can do this. Well, trials are designed to do the same thing. They're designed to help us solve for X without panicking, without getting frustrated, and without giving up. It's why God gives grace to the humble. So as the old hymn says, you have a little talk with Jesus and you tell him all of your trials and you ask for his help in solving for X. You pray for the Holy Spirit and the wisdom to solve for X. You trust him to strengthen you in every way possible, in every situation imaginable, to fix your eyes on Jesus and keep working the problem. You keep on driving. Because every trial prepares you for the next one. Every trial is a reminder that someday they'll all be over. You'll graduate. You'll get that diploma. You will receive an inheritance. That's why Peter says after you've suffered a little while, he puts a time frame on it. God determines how long a little while is. I remember as a kid always asking my, you know, all kids, how's it going to get there in a little while? In a little while. How long is a little while? It's a little while. It's a little while. How long did it take us to get from Bowling Green to Richtown? A little while. Because in a little while, the scripture will be proven true that says, for those who trust, for those who love God, all things do work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Because God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, says Peter, even the evil that our adversary the devil plots against us, God is able to convert into a blessing. He will restore us, says Peter. He will repair whatever is damaged. That's how he conforms us into the image of his son. He will confirm us. He will give us the courage uh, to follow Christ through the valley of the shadow of death until he leads us into our eternal inheritance. He will strengthen us because it's by his spirit that we are able to do all things through trust in Christ. And he will establish us. He will stand us firm. He will make us steadfast and immovable. He will help us build our lives on a firm foundation of Christ and his word. And then Peter ends this section with a doxology. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And that word, the, is important because it means the totality of the dominion. It belongs to God and to God alone. 
He has the all-encompassing, the devil-defeating, Jesus-exalting power to do what he says. God is more than willing to do these things. He is able to do them, says Peter. He is not threatened by the devil's tactics. But he is wise enough to use the devil's tactics in order to conform us to the image of his son. He's not afraid of Satan, neither should we. Our God, our God is the Lord, the Almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. All things in heaven and on earth and under the earth are governed by his mighty hand, even the various trials that we encounter, even and including our adversary, the devil. A few hours into uh, that drive home, in that blizzard, I remembered a story I had heard about the Battle of Waterloo. That's more insight into the mind of Malenga. Driving home in a snowstorm, I'm thinking about the Battle of Waterloo. I don't know if it's a true story or if it's a story that's attached to the legend of Lord Wellington, but if you remember anything about the Battle of Waterloo, Wellington led a group of allied armies against Napoleon in this big plain in Waterloo. And Wellington and his armies defeated Napoleon, thus ending Napoleon's threat to dominate all of Europe. At the end of the battle, when all was said and done, one of Wellington's generals crowed that, you know, our men, he says, were braver than the enemy. No, said Wellington. My men weren't braver than the enemy. They were simply braver five minutes more. That helped me somehow, knowing I didn't know how long it would take us to get home. I began to think, well, if Wellington's men were braver five minutes more than the enemy, can I keep driving for five more minutes in this snowstorm? I looked at my watch. I can do that. Five minutes went by. Can I do another five minutes? And I did that until we pulled into our driveway at home. Sometimes, and especially when life gets hard, and circumstances are grim. We don't always keep our eyes on Jesus. That's when the Holy Spirit comes along and brings to mind things like the Battle of Waterloo. And he says, can you, can you hang on for five more minutes? Will you let me help you hang on for five more minutes? And if you're willing to humble yourself, you'll say, I, I think so. I can keep breathing for five more minutes. I can keep hoping for five more minutes. And then five minutes goes by, and he says, you think you can do it for another five minutes if I help you? I think so. Good. Let's keep doing this. So, brother, sister, young man, young woman, I may not know what your specific situation or circumstance is, but let me tell you that Jesus does. Can you follow him five minutes longer? Will you follow him five minutes longer? And when those five minutes are up, will you follow him for five minutes more? Until those five minutes add up to a lifetime. Peter says, yes, you can. You can because God has promised to help those who humble themselves under his mighty hand. You can because God has promised to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish everyone who trusts in Christ. You can. 
because everyone who practices what Jesus preaches has the Father's guarantee they will make it safely home. So whatever happens, you keep driving. Whatever happens, you keep practicing what Jesus preaches until you're safely home. You think about that. Let's pray.